are continuing in our look at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and today, it is a much shorter passage. Thank you, Pastor Scott, for last week. Uh, you preached, it uh, seemed like, about half the book. Uh, that was my fault, but uh, you did a great job, so thank you for that. Um, and then today, we are looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. And so let's begin uh, with this. Luke writes this, Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Whatever, wherever they do not welcome you as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. Now Herod, the ruler, heard about all that had taken place, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the ancient prophets had arisen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he tried to see him. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, this space has been created around us even now. Physically, this space, time-wise, this space, emotionally and spiritually. And so we pray that your spirit would blow through this sanctuary even now. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, you know, we've been saying this a lot during our look at the gospel of Luke, but we have to, most of us constantly, I think, fight the battle of jumping quickly to what it is that the disciples were doing and because we like to know what exactly is it that the disciples are called to do, and uh, we think that then we will know exactly what it is that we are called to do. So it makes a lot of sense, and yet, as we've said quite a few times when we've been looking at this particular gospel, it's always important that we don't skip over uh, what is frequently at the very beginning of whatever passage or story it is we're looking at. So this week, the very beginning says, then Jesus called the 12 together. This is very similar to our mission statement here at ZPC called Together by God. Alan Culpepper suggests that this portion of Luke is perhaps based off of a little bit of what Mark talks about when he describes what it means to be a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? The Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 14, it defines basically a disciple like this. Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, just keep this up for one moment. If we were just looking, what does it mean to be a disciple? Uh, many of us would just 
just quickly skip, oh, okay, it means that we go, are sent out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. And that's exactly true. That, the very, that we oftentimes think what it means to be a disciple is to be sent out. And that is 100% true. But what we will repeatedly, it seems, skip over is that very first part. He appointed the 12 that they might, what? Be with him. That the first part about what it means to be a disciple is that Jesus wants to be with you. Now, we saw this in Luke as well, this kind of description of a disciple. We kind of skipped over it a little bit. Chapter 8, verse 1. Let's look at that. Let's remember just the last chapter. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming, and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were what? With him. As well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. You see, it's remarkably easy for us when we begin to read scripture and see these stories to get quickly to what it is that we are called to do. But there is incredible beauty in stopping And remembering that first and foremost, as a disciple, what Jesus wants is simply to be with you. Jesus is delighted in you. Jesus enjoys you. Jesus laughs at your jokes even when no one else does. Jesus listens to you. When you and Jesus are talking, Jesus is looking at you, and he is not looking kind of beyond you to see, is there somebody more interesting who has walked into the room? Someone more exciting, someone who's a better disciple. No, no, no. When Jesus is with you, he is with you. This is the key component of what it means to be. Be a disciple. In Jesus' eyes, you are not simply some object to do his bidding, as we oftentimes might think in the church. Rather, you are a subject to be loved. Now, the truth is that in much of our relationship with God and with others, we miss the difference between being an object and being a subject. So what are some examples of being an object? Well, one of the greatest examples, the clearest examples, is a, is, a, is, is a car salesman, right? When you walk into the car lot, you know that when he or she looks at you, you are not a subject to be loved. You are an object. There is something that he or she wants from you. And what do they want from you? They want money. They want you to buy their car so that they can have your money. It is a transactional relationship. Now, let me be clear. There is nothing wrong with that. We all, I mean, we need cars. When you go to the grocery store, you want to eat, so that's going to be a transactional relationship. I mean, this is the way that we kind of live, and that is okay. There is nothing wrong with that. The struggle is... When it begins to seep into our interpersonal relationships with friends and with families and with God. Where we either look at them or they are looking at us as if we are not a subject, but as if we are an object. And the truth is that many of us from a very young age learn what it means to be an object rather than a subject. 
Sometimes it's parents, parents who are perhaps well-meaning, and it's not that they don't love their children, and yet maybe a child cannot help but begin to feel, get the feeling that they would be even more loved if they obeyed more often. That they would be even more loved if they got the right kinds of grades. That they would be even more loved if they did well on the ball field. That they would be even more loved if they uh, played an instrument well. It's very hard at times, even as a parent, to not convey that. Let's be really transparent. But when you are a child, you begin to think, I am loved, but if dot, 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 I would be even more loved. Or maybe it's a spouse. And maybe you feel like, yeah, I'm loved, but I can't help. But begin to think, the feeling I'm getting is that I would be more loved if I had more of the personality of that person or that person. Or if I did a better job at my work or around the house. I'm loved, but I would be even more loved if this. We pastors actually are oftentimes guilty of conveying this as well. We have this sense of, well, you know what? We love you and God loves you, but if you volunteered... If you give to a particular project, then you'll be really loved. So that you become an object of our bidding rather than someone simply to be loved. But now let's be honest, what is perhaps the person who objectifies ourselves more than anyone else is often ourselves. We look in the mirror Perhaps we think to ourselves, boy, I would be more lovable if, if I lost a few pounds, if I was more disciplined, if I was a better worker, if I was a better spouse, if I was a better friend, if I was a better parent, if I was a better disciple. These are the thoughts that go on in our heads. In other words, We become objects as soon as we begin to believe that we will be more deeply loved if or when dot, dot, dot. And it is in the very middle of that dot, 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 in the very middle of that ellipse that Jesus inserts himself to change the sentence. It is in the very middle of that dot, dot, dot that Jesus comes into our lives to remind us of the truth that he desires to simply be with us and calls us together out of his remarkable love. So that every week, Monday through Saturday, after having been told through commercials and advertisements or through our boss or through a family member or a friend or by looking in the mirror, I will be more loved if, I will be more loved if, I will be more loved if, Jesus inserts himself to say, you are loved right now. Each time, I will be honest, when I am still enough, To simply remember that the almighty creator loves me, Jerry Deck, right now. It causes me to stumble or to tremble or to be taken aback in some way. It's a bit like I shared 
after Megan and I's first date or during our first lunch date that we had when we kind of quickly, for whatever reason, began to just share all of the negative things about ourselves, about the amount of student loan debt that we had, about the fact that if there was a Skittle that was on that disgusting ground that Megan said she would still eat it nonetheless. <laughs> but the most shocking thing was not just how messed up each of us was. It was that at the end of the lunch date, we were both still there. That even though having heard these things, we still wanted to be with one another, was this remarkable truth. See, this is what discipleship is about. Discipleship begins with understanding that you are a subject that Jesus loves. That Jesus longs to be in community and in relationship with you. This is the good news of the gospel. And it is out of that inhale, as we have been describing it, it is out of that sense of being loved by Jesus that we then exhale and move out. One commentator has said it's actually a very natural response. The more that we know Jesus, the more we long to experience Jesus in other places. It's a little bit like when you have children. When you love your children, you don't just love them right here. You want to see them in different spaces, right? You want to see what are, what are they like when they go to school or, or, or what are they like when they go out on that ball field. That's why we go to all of these concerts. There, there has to be some reason we go to all of these things. And it's why we want to, to go and see their graduation. It's why we want to go and just be a part of them with their friends in this place or that. We love to see them in these different places. Why? Because we just love them so much. We love them when we're together here, and we love them when we go out. You see, this is a part of the reason. This is the foundation why we are sent out. Why? Because if we love Jesus in here, what we know is that Jesus is also doing things out there, and we want to experience that. What we see in the Gospel of Luke and every gospel really, is where is Jesus so often active? He's active with the poor. He's active with the hungry. He's active with the thirsty. He's active wherever those who are afraid or who are anxious, that is where Jesus is. And so we, when we are sent out, it is a natural kind of culmination of loving and experience that Jesus in here and wanting to grow in deeper ways. So we go out to see where else he is. Now, this is part of the reason why this passage is so critical. Because one of the mistakes that we often make in the church that we have made for pretty much probably just about as long as the church has been around is our posture when we go out. Which is that far too often we go out and rather then echoing Jesus' love and our being a subject, we go out and more like there are objects out there to which we, to whom we must conquer. How do we make sure that we keep the people to whom we are ministering, whom we are called to minister, how do we make sure that they look like subjects that we, are, that we love rather than objects that we are called to kind of do something to? Well, we do it by being humble and we do it by being vulnerable. 
And this is exactly what Luke is talking about here. What did Jesus say? Let's look at this part of this passage once again. Take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Pastor Scott and Stan in their podcast this week did a remarkable job of just pointing out how vulnerable that makes you. Do you get that sense? They are called to go out and to minister. But as they go out and minister, it is clear that they are also in need. They don't go out in this great sense of power as if we're going to domineer over. They go after, please be sure to hear this, because they have something to offer. But they also go out with remarkable amount of vulnerability to make sure that they never go out trying to find people to conquer. Because it's hard to conquer a people when you are desperately in need of them. You see, when we go out vulnerably and in humility, we experience Jesus in ever deeper ways. And this, let's just be completely frank, this is most important For those of us who have all the resources in the world to remember. Because you know what resources do? It allows us to not be vulnerable. The first thing we do when we have resources is we save money. We get a house. We get a good car. All of those things. Why? Deep down. Why? Because it allows us to feel less and less vulnerable. Which means... This is not to make us feel bad, but what it does mean is that we have to take this passage even more seriously. We have got to insert ourselves into places of servanthood where we feel vulnerable, where we are in need from them just as they may be in need for us. I've shared with you all before about my uh, time in Germany this last summer, I spent four weeks uh, in Freiburg uh, doing an immersion kind of program uh, in German. And I did the exact same thing, not in Freiburg, but in uh, Bonn, uh, almost 20 years earlier, in 2004. And there were a lot of similarities between these two times that I spent uh, in Germany, but there were also a lot of differences between those two times. Uh, One of the differences was when I did it the first time, I was really kind of the only American. It was me and a bunch of Middle Eastern men, uh, which was very interesting in and of itself. I learned a lot just from that kind of cultural uh, uh, exchange, Uh, whereas this time it was me and primarily a bunch of Americans. Uh, Another difference was the fact that when I did it, you know, uh, 19 years ago, I was 19 years younger. Which means that most of the people who were in that class, they were were kind of my age, right? I fit in pretty well. Well, this time, they were those Americans, and they were almost all college students. And they were young college students, 19 or 20. I could be wrong, but it felt like a lot of them were there because you can drink at 18 when you're in Germany. And so it was this super weird, almost creaky, a creepy kind of juxtaposition, right? I mean, there I was, four daughters, uh, some, one of them only about five years younger than them, you know, as a pastor, and I'm there. And the other difference, you see, is that I didn't live in a house like I did the first time I went. I lived in, in kind of a dorm with them. 
So uh, uh, no lie here, that was with, you know, probably a few times a week each time when I would be sitting down on my bed ready to go to bed and I would hear them out in the hallway and they'd be yelling at each other because it's just the volume that they spoke and they'd be saying, all right, I'm going to come by, I'll pick you up in 15 minutes and we'll go out. And they were going out at the same time that I was putting in my earplugs <laughs> and turning up my white noise and going to bed. I will say this, I looked and felt a much better that next morning than any of them did. <laughs> it was a very strange kind of feeling, just how different it was. But probably the greatest difference, and I may have shared this, the greatest difference is that this, when I was there back in 2004, I wanted people to think I knew exactly what I was doing. And I didn't want anyone to know that I was American. I wanted them to think that I was German. And so every time I would go into a restaurant or, or wherever, grocery store, whatever it was, I would just start speaking in German, right? I would just do it. Now, the problem was is I only had about a sentence or so that I knew. And I would be okay if they asked one specific question. But other than that, I was in trouble. And so I would go through with all the confidence in the world and I would ask for that one thing that I wanted in German after having studied it to make sure I got it exactly right. And then they would almost always ask me some other question and I didn't know and I'd begin to stumble and they would roll their eyes and they would oftentimes look a little cranky and then they would immediately, of course, go to English and then we would just talk and it was always very dispiriting. But I didn't want them to know that I wasn't German. I thought I could pull this off. But this time when I went, and honestly, I didn't plan this at all, but I think it was just my very first encounter when I walked in. I said, I'm not doing that again. And so I just walked in, right, and I just said, you know, ich lerne Deutsch, sprich mit mir nur Deutsch, kein English, right? Which you know what that means. Basically just, you know, please only speak German to me. I am learning German. Please don't speak English to me. And it was remarkable that when I led with that, when I led with this fact that, you know what, I really don't know what I'm doing here, and I need your help. At no time that I can remember during my actually six weeks that I was there and all, at no time do I remember anyone just switching over to English or rolling their eyes or seeing upset in any way. Almost every single time when I started with this posture of vulnerability, well, let's be clear, especially at the beginning, I didn't want to do that. I don't like looking stupid. Does anyone here like looking dumb? I don't like being vulnerable. As an American, I'm not used to being vulnerable, right? We're used to being in power and being in control. But when I began with this sense, out of this remarkable kind of posture of just saying, look, I need your help. All of a sudden, they came alongside of me. And it changed everything by that simple, different posture. You see, being sent out with no staff and no bag or no bread, no money, an extra tunic, depending on the hospitality of others, is always this very clear introduction. I do not have everything figured out. I need you. You have something to offer to me. You see, and when we go out and are sent out as followers of Jesus, what we know that every person that we may, that we meet, that we minister, what they have to offer us is Jesus. Because we know that Jesus is with the poor and the vulnerable and the hurting 
and the anxious and the fearful. Jesus sent them out in this remarkably vulnerable way. And if we just simply skip over to the fact that, okay, they go out and they start healing and they do all these things and that's wonderful and we are called to go out, please hear me, because we do have something to offer. We do have good news of the gospel to share. We should go out with confidence, but we should also go out knowing that those to whom we minister have much to teach and to show us. This building project that we are kind of in the middle of kicking off, I think this is really important for our body. I don't think it's an extra. I don't think it's even a, well, that would be nice if. I think it is a part of what we are trying to do to help people to experience the incredible love and grace and hospitality of Jesus. For people to be able to come in and know that their children are going to be able to be safe. For people to be able to come in and to be able to see out and to be able to have all of this light that comes through. To have this inviting space. To have more spaces where people can grow in their relationship with one another. To have more space where people can simply reflect in the presence of Jesus Christ. All of those things are important. We do not just skip over that to say, well, it would be good if we can have more people in here. So that way we can send people out. Having people come in here is never a means to an end. They need to know that they are the subject of Christ's love. And then we exhale. Because we know how important it is that we experience Jesus out in the world and that others can experience Jesus out in the world. Being sent out has always been a very important part of the life of ZPC. I don't oftentimes compare churches because I don't think it's very healthy, but I'll just say this one time, which is that as far as my research can say, most churches, the average church, gives away about 5% of the money that they give. And ZPC gives away 22%, almost four and a half times that amount. Why? Because we have always known that we don't just inhale, that we also exhale. But what, of course, what we are also trying to convey here is the sense of leading by example, of the sense that this is the call to us, not for us to do it in terms of finance, but also for us to do it in terms of being sent out, each and every one of us. We lead by going out together. It's why we're doing this. It's why I'm wearing this shirt today. My girls were very confused this morning with why I was wearing this shirt. I think they thought I was gotten fired. <laughs> and the truth is, and when I'm wearing this shirt up here, there are a few of you who would like for me to be fired because of that. But we're wearing this shirt. Why? Because we want you to know that there are a remarkable amount of opportunities when you go out from this place today, when we dismiss, we encourage you to please go into the gym. There are 38 different ministries that are being represented, over 100 different ministry opportunities, many of those things that your children can do as well. 
Because we know that a part of being a disciple and growing in our love for Jesus is exhaling and being sent out. That those who have received the deep love of Jesus know then and are excited to go out and then to share that with others. Not simply to add to our to-do list or out of a sense of guilt, but out of a sense of deep love. This morning, here is my hope and my prayer. First that each and every one of you knows that Jesus loves you desperately. And if there is anyone who is here this morning who does not feel that or has never felt that or has never heard that, I want you to hear that today. And I want to encourage you to talk to me or to Pastor Scott or to one of the elders, whomever it may be, to talk to someone in a green shirt. Any of them would be more than happy To be able to share this good news of the gospel, full stop, Jesus loves you. And then secondly, that we would be a people who as we grow in this love for Jesus Christ would know that we are called to be sent out in humility and in vulnerability. Knowing that as we do so, we both have much to offer and much to receive. And as we continue to move forward together, our hope and our prayer is that as we create spaces physically, as we create time for us to minister in places where we can minister, that the Spirit of God will continue to blow through us for Christ and for his coming kingdom. May it be so. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do give you great praise for the fact that you love us, that you have called us together. I pray, Lord, that each person who is here this morning will know that you have called them by name that you know them, that you long to be known by them. And in that knowledge, Lord, in that experience, we pray that you would then help us to see how you have called us to go out, to be able to see you wherever we go, To be able to offer this same kind of love and grace and mercy to those we meet. That all the world may know that you are the Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.